Good afternoon, everybody. This is Vince Boudreau, and I'm the president of City College of New York and your host for From City to the World. From City to the World is a show that we're going to be doing every last Wednesday of every month. And the objective of this show is to bring faculty and research from the City College of New York that we think matters in a particular way to the City of New York and to the world and have a conversation with somebody who is responsible for that work and put them in conversation with somebody who is out in the community in Harlem or nearby that's working on the same thing. And and the point of it really is to demonstrate once a month in this radio show the ways in which the work of the community and the work of the City College are aligned. Uh, So I welcome you to the inaugural show of From City to the World. I hope you'll tune in every month, last Wednesday of every month, uh, for the conversation. So today, uh, for our inaugural show, um, we have Professor Herb Boyd. It's the last day of Black History Month today, and we wanted to, in a special way, commemorate that occasion with a conversation with one of the most prolific chroniclers of Harlem and the black experience in America. Um, we are pleased that Professor Boyd has been with City College teaching for the last 12 years. And I regret to say that because of the phenomenal success of the book that we're going to be talking about, we are, I hope, temporarily losing his services to the lecture circuit and, and other endeavors. But we're more pleased than I can tell you to have him here for this inaugural show and what I hope will be a great conversation. He will be joined in the second half of this show with uh, the publisher of one of Harlem's most prominent newspapers, um, uh, Eleanor Tatum. She'll be joining us, and she is now the editor-in-chief of the Amsterdam News, has held that position since 1996. But if you don't know the Amsterdam News, you don't know Harlem, and we're really pleased to have her join us for the second half of the conversation. So let me start by telling you just a little bit about Herb. Um, He's in the studio with us today. He's an award-winning author, a journalist, as I said, a professor here at City College. And in every one of those jobs, his underlying job is as an activist. He's written or edited over 25 books, published countless articles for national magazines and newspapers, including um, the Amsterdam News, the the paper that um, Ms. Tatum edits now and publishes. So some of his most popular books include The Black Panthers for Beginners, A Harlem Reader, Celebration of New York's Most Famous Neighborhood, We Shall Overcome, A History of the Civil Rights Movement as It Happened. Um, He has a book on James Baldwin, Baldwin's Harlem. That's a biography of James Baldwin, and that was a finalist in 2009 for the NAACP Image Awards. And I will say the book that we'll be talking about today was also a finalist for that same award this year. In 1991, he won three first-place awards in the New York Association of Black Journalists for his articles published in the Amsterdam News. Um, He's been inducted in both the Literary Hall of Fame for Writers of African Descent and the Madison Square Garden Hall of Fame as a journalist. He graduated from Wayne State University in Detroit, and um, he writes in the introduction to this book that he has had a, a, a kind of a love affair with the city of Detroit, and we'll be hearing all about that. He's been an instructor at City College in the Black Studies program for the past 12 years. And we are pleased today to be discussing his latest book, Black Detroit, A People's History of Self-Determination. That's published by HarperCollins. Um, And they describe it as a blend of memoir, love letter, history, 
and clear-eyed reportage that explores the city's past, present, and future and its significance to the African-American legacy and the nation's fabric. I actually, as I went through it, see the book as um, you know, really a kind of phenomenal effort at storytelling. Uh, you, 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 you go through this book page after page after page, and you, you encounter you know, Malcolm X when he was Malcolm Little and uh, you know, the first mayor of, of Detroit when he was still uh, 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 a, a fierce uh, activist, a street activist. And you know, page after page, you get this really uh, profound series of stories that you tell about Detroit. Um, and I want to, I want to start by saying, you know, it, it, first of all, welcome to the show. I couldn't, I oh, couldn't tell you, you how happy I'm to have you here. <laughs> I'm going to take you on a road with me. <laughs> oh, I would, lo- I would love to do, I would love to do introductions. You, just, you take me wherever, I'll be there. Okay. Um, but you know, at the very beginning of the book, sure, you, you, you take some pains to acknowledge that. You know, when you talk about the black history of Detroit, everybody's going to focus on Motown, and you do too. But you wait about 150 pages <laughs> to get there, which is which is really nice. Uh, your mission is really—it's a bigger mission than that. You start from the very first black people that come to Detroit. Your story spans centuries. You kind of very systematically go from the churches to the arts to the political scene to labor to migration to essentially every field of, of economic endeavor. And, and, and so eventually you wind up with um, a history of Detroit that, that really focuses on the lives of black people in it. And you come away from it really with, 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 with two conclusions. I do at any rate. First is you don't get a history of Detroit without a history of, of black Detroit. But second, in so many of the tellings of what happened in Detroit this year or that year, if you go outside of your book to sort of standard histories, you get a history of Detroit with a black person here or there. Mm. And what you actually show is by, by, by collating and curating all these stories, you pull out of that a history of a people that we don't always see. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about you know, how, why you approached it that way. And <laughs> Well, Mr. President, <laughs> I think you've done a marvelous job of... Uh, laying out the blueprint of the paper. And uh, let me, first of all, apologize. I've been struggling with, I don't know what it is, but it's hit me in my throat, and it's either a fog or a frog. <laughs> can't, and, can't hear a thing from you. Right, right. Uh, somebody say, well, it gives you additional resonance. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, I certainly appreciate this opportunity to share the inaugural show with you, your debut. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it potentially it augurs well in terms of uh, providing the kind of conversation we certainly need in our community. Mm-hmm. And, co- of course, here at WACR, I mean, over the years, I guess I've been on the air as, as much as I've been in the classroom mm-hmm. here. And, uh, by the way, I should also mention that I had a discussion just this morning with uh, – with the director of our program, uh, Cheryl Sterling, Dr. Mm-hmm. Sterling. And she was saying, Herb, uh, uh, you going to do something in the fall? And I say, I don't think so, because the book, it'll be so disruptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not fair to the students. Mm-hmm. Uh, some professors do that. You know, they take off and they're gone this week, that week, and what have you. But I find that uh, very, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But I told her, 
pencil me in for the spring. That is fantastic. <laughs> I'll um, be back in the spring and probably closing it out, Vince, because I'll be uh, at that time I'll be eighty years old, okay. and I think it's time to kind of hang up the kufi okay. uh, and step away. So what I'm hearing is, first of all, let's save that tape. So that we have it in the spring when we're settling class. And second, um, big party in the spring at the end of the semester. But thank you for your years of work here at State oh, College. Thank, yeah, it's been a pleasure. I mean, the students here, I always say, tell people I learn as much from my students as I probably dispense. And um, But it's kind of been a mutual admiration society here at uh, City College. Uh, Gloria Brown, I mean, I go back to Dr. Jeffries, uh, who's instrumental in bringing me on campus. Mm-hmm. And certainly over the years, uh, I mean, with Angela and with Diara, you know, and with all of the people who have been at this station. And I can see that this magnificent improvement here, oh, I yeah. mean, it's just lovely. So all of this here, it gives me an opportunity, a perfect platform. Uh, to express my appreciation to the school and the opportunities it gave me to take step away from time to time and do the kind of research. Uh, it's really my mother's book. You know, I always mm-hmm. people say, oh, you know, it's a nice uh, part memoir, part uh, autobiography, uh, part biography, yeah. and a kind of a love letter to the city because mm-hmm. uh, I left Detroit in 1985. Okay. Uh, this is my third time living in New York. And uh, this has been a charmed one. And uh, so, you know, but this is a reflection and digging. Somebody, one of the students asked me, Herb, how long did it take you to write that book? I said 79 years. <laughs> so you start when you were one. <laughs> You're right. That's fantastic. You're right. <laughs> Just kind of digging back in the, uh, in the memory bank. And mm-hmm. I know where all the bodies are buried in the city and uh, who are the best voices and those people who are instrumental in teaching me a lot about the history. A few of them are still around. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, the research has to be done. You have to confirm and verify your yeah. shaky memories of yeah. that. You can't always trust your memory. So it's about a two, three years of research and about a year of writing. And lo and behold, you got a people's history of self-determination. It's 300 years, Vince. Yeah, that's You're right. From 1701 down to the moment. Yeah. And uh, going back over those years, uh, as you suggest, in terms of those stops that I make along the way, I kind of lay it out episodically. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, every 10 years, there's a momentous occasion in the city that, you know, resonates beyond Detroit. It has, like, sometimes a national and international implications. Yeah. No matter which episode you look at, beginning with the whole slave period in Detroit, a lot of people... You say you say slavery in Detroit? Yeah. Oh yes. Slavery in New York? Oh yes. Yeah. You know, in fact I try to draw some parallels, some I can con- comparison between what happens in Detroit and what's happening in New York in terms of the slave period. There's so many similarities, so yeah. many common factors here that I was able to exploit. But after a while my editor said, Herb, stick to Detroit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do New York later, you can do Harlem later, and of course it's something I've been working on for many, many years. Yeah on the whole history of Harlem, but it's done episodically because each decade there's at least one crucial moment in that city's history that has, like, ramifications all over the world. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so, so many of those, and I, I think you, you go back to the Dr. Sweet incident in, in oh, the early 90s, but, but from there forward, about every 10 years, there's a moment where... You know, it includes violence, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Sweet, 
prosperous doctor in Detroit moves into a white neighborhood and winds up defending himself and his family against a mob. And Clarence Darrow t- t- takes on that case. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and, and, and in, in connection with that story, one of the things you say explicitly, you know, newspapers all around the country, including the Amsterdam News, were covering that story. I was struck in, in the conversation at the trial how much of that could have been you, you, we, we could be putting that trial on parts of it today. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get Clarence Darrow's opening or uh, closing arguments. Uh, it, I'll, I'll just read from your book. Sure. My clients, he says, are charged with murder, but they're really charged with being black. You're facing a problem of two races, a problem that will take centuries to solve. If I felt that none of you were prejudiced, I'd have no fear. I want you to be as unprejudiced as you can be. This idea of being on trial for being black... Mm-hmm. It sounds like driving while black. It sounds like all <laughs> these things. He's talking about racial profiling. Nineteen twenty-five. That's amazing. So that's that's one of the things about uh, looking at African American history that um, it's the unchanging same. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, as you move from decade to decade, some of the um, the inequities at the beginning and from city to city and state to state. You know, you can pick it up at any point in this narrative, and it has significance. No matter which period you look at, looking at the uh, the sweet case of 1925, obviously that's a good place to start to be, begin to talk about race relations in America. I don't know what you felt like writing the 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 work, but reading it, you get that there there is that kind of cyclical nature to it, and and. You know, partly you wind up fighting the same struggles year after year after year. But the other thing that's cyclical is you keep thinking this is the moment when the black community arrives, right? So early on, you get all those great civil leaders that start the, the three great churches of Detroit. And then by the 1880s, it kind of peters out. And, and you get a wave of uh, European immigrants that kind of displace uh, African Americans, and then you you get the Gilded Age, and all of a sudden there's all these employment <laughs> opportunities for people, and you think, here's where things are finally going to get better for people, and then that kind of peters out as well, and you get the same thing with the post-war period. We have all these African American soldiers come back, and they're empowered, and they've been in Europe. Um, was it like that to write the book? Did you were, were you were you, <laughs> you 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 keep waiting for for Black Detroit to be able to kind of have an opportunity to see to heave a sigh of relief and say <laughs> we finally got something here we can build. There's up. no relief. I guess that's, <laughs> that's, that's no relief. part of the story, right? You have to be ready to constantly and struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're talking about you know the kind of oppressive aspects of discrimination and racism and bigotry and mm-hmm. prejudice, uh, the restricted covenant. Yeah. Uh, you could talk about the 1920s, and I think that's a pivotal moment in understanding the uh, greatest influx of these blues people, these yeah. refugees, these uh, runaways and what have you, uh, migrants from the South that arrive in Detroit. Uh, the uh, Henry Ford made that offer, mm-hmm. $5 a day, and that spurred, you know, this very intense movement of people. The, Democra- the demographic shift in this country has never been more phenomenal. Right. Uh, Detroit was a centerpiece in that. Uh, obviously, uh, places Cleveland, Youngstown, Pittsburgh, Gary, Indiana, Chicago, they also received a large influx of African-American people. But because of the automobile industry, 
And because of the whole history of manufacturing its city, mm-hmm. it made Detroit uh, a key uh, destination. Mm-hmm. And, whoa, they arrived in such numbers that it created a number of social welfare issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, we had in place uh, two, at least two or three phenomenal uh, social welfare agents, mm-hmm. uh, John Dancy, forced to be Washington, George Haynes, and what have you. And these individuals began to look at the problems facing these new arrivals and what had to be done in terms of providing uh, health care, uh, housing, job opportunities, mm-hmm. and more or less, you have the seminal aspects then of the National Urban League yeah. right in Detroit. So that's the first indication in the early 20s that you see that Detroit begins to play a role in certain very phenomenal developments in terms of socioeconomic, you know, uh, the uh, political and cultural stuff that goes on in this country. Usually when people say this, when they say Detroit, the first, the second two words is like uh, automobile and Motown. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, but what we try to do in Black Detroit is show, you know, from a number of perspectives, you know, the entrepreneurial aspect. The, uh, I think the key word, though, is self-determination. Mm-hmm. How these people were facing all kind of uh, tremendous obstacles and challenges nonetheless overcome mm-hmm. and temporarily set aside some of the very, uh, you know, menacing aspects, you know, mm-hmm. of having uh, – a black face in America, yeah. you know. So, but one of the things about this, and as you pointed out earlier, there's a number of uh, very important personalities and figures that arrive on the stage, and it starts right away with the uh, with Thornton and Lucy Blackburn. Right. I guess you, you that whole eighteen hundred and thirty affair with the Blackburn family, yeah. the couple runaway slave fugitives from Louisville, Kentucky, that arrive in Detroit and then ultimately is right in the center of a melee uh, that leads to a sheriff's death and of course they have to kind of boop go a little bit further, go across the Detroit River into Windsor, into Canada. Mm-hmm. And so if you go back in time that particular route, you know, out of the south into the north, mm-hmm. Detroit is a is a key terminus. It's a terminal point there, and 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 so the bounty hunters are in pursuit of mm-hmm. all the runaways, and they apprehend the uh, Blackburns, and then it's like, uh, uh-uh. uh, we had an aroused abolitionist community in Detroit, yeah. and say that's not going to go down here, yeah. and they began to come to the rescue and salvage the Blackburns and put them in a position so they can then be ferreted across the river and on to other parts of Canada. And then, of course, another story develops with them, which we don't have time to talk about they that. Get picked up in yeah, we do that second up. time around this. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> you know, but what's so striking about that is when the Blackburns arrive and they have that, and this is during the fugitive slave laws, the, the black population of Detroit isn't huge, Not but it's all. mobilized. Yes. And, and, and so you can go to, you know, the, 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 the Dr. Uh, Sweet affair and the later rights. It, it almost doesn't matter how small or how big the black community is in, in Detroit. When something like this happens, they are, they're all in. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, early on, it was, you know, you could probably count in the hundreds, you know, below hundred of how many people were in, deeply involved in the Blackburn case, but yeah. it was a seminal case. No doubt about it. It's going to be a while before you have a, an intense uh, African-American population in this city. Of course, like we say, I think when you hit the 1920s, you know, you begin to deal with a considerable number of yeah. arrivals. Right. Uh, 
by the 1930s, 1940s, there's a second wave uh, in the 1940s, the World War II. And here's where Detroit then becomes like uh, uh, another page in American history mm-hmm. with the whole arsenal of democracy. Yeah. What happens when you begin to convert these, uh, the automobile uh, industry is converted into a war machine? Right. And that's where my mother really enters the story in a very significant way because she had arrived in Detroit in 1941. I arrived in Detroit uh, in 1943, two months before the race riot of 1943. Mm-hmm. It was a hello, introduction to Detroit. Yes, you know, what's was. going on with these people running crazy in the street and everything? But I was only four. But some of the things was coming to me that would live with me all of my days because I saw it happen again in 1967 mm-hmm. with the rebellion there. And, and so there's a kind of constant themes, certain themes and narratives that you can pick on. You can follow it, events all the way from the beginning in 1701 right down to the moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, when we talk about these cycles of prosperity, mm-hmm. they're always punctuated by these moments of violence. You know, this, it, when, when you, st- and it's, you see this in a, in a people's history, the juxtaposition of a group of people who are somehow getting economic power that's not matched by political power and rights. And, and it, it becomes, it puts a target on their back for resentful members of the white population. And it gives people increasingly over the course of the decade mm-hmm. more strength. The, the resistance gets more determined, more mm-hmm. focused, um, sometimes more violent. But but, uh, but absolutely, this is a story of people claiming their place in the city. Mm-hmm. That's a very astute observation, uh, one that, uh, you know, lends itself to the dialectic in terms of that uh, moment of actual relative improvement and progress. At mm-hmm. the same time, you know, it's two steps forward, a step back. You know, it's always like the push and pull, the give and take. And that's part and parcel, you know, the African-American experience, certainly of American experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have moments of absolute prosperity and then the kind of the downturns that come. Mm -hmm. And we have to kind of like start it all over again, you know. Mm -hmm. But the entrepreneurial spirit in Detroit is one of the things that really stands out. You can see these individuals because of restricted covenants, because of the racism and discrimination that you have to do for self. Mm-hmm. And that whole theme of doing for self, you know, is a very important one for Detroit because you go back to like a Elijah Muhammad who arrives as Elijah Poole from Sandersville, Georgia. You're at a time when uh, Henry Ford is making these offers and everything, and he ends up working at the Ford Motor Company. And eventually, out of the black bottom community in which he arrives, emerges the Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't realize that really a black woman who was like centermost, you know, in the creation. And that was uh, uh, Bernstein Sharif Muhammad, who was married to John Muhammad, who was the brother of Elijah Muhammad. So we have this here woman who had clerical skills because she had gone to Commerce High School in Detroit. Mm -hmm. So she was able to work with the Fard Muhammad and along with Elijah Poo and put together the University of Islam. And all of this is the foundation of the Nation of Islam. Temple number one, Black Bottom, Detroit. Mm -hmm. Well, well, and you see it, the, the I mean, one of the things that made the original three churches of the 1800s great is they immediately dove into the mission of education. They immediately took that on. And then coming out of the education mission, the social mission, you said it earlier, you get early, early on from this community the, the, the remnants of, you, know, you said the Urban League, but you also get a shadow welfare state 
you know, covering the ground that the official government wasn't going to cover. Exactly. Which is, you know, that's stewardship. That's what, that's that kind of self-help, do-for-self thing mm-hmm. that's going to be current uh, from uh, one uh, generation to another. You mm-hmm. find individuals who find a way to pass the baton on mm-hmm. and pick it up. Even from the news, I, I'm at the Amsterdam News, and, mm-hmm. and and knowing the history of that paper is to study the history of journal, black journalism in America. Yeah. And uh, Detroit, again, is a very, very key moment in that in terms of Detroit plain dealer. Mm-hmm. And that, again, points back to the entrepreneurial uh, uh, Self, uh, self-improvement, self self-development, self-determination as a part of the community because here's this black family, the Pelham family. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, you know, any, any moment you want to choose in, in about 50 years of Detroit's history, you'll find a Pelham. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, just yeah. a remarkable family. Yeah. But the Plain Dealer, you know, is pretty much like the Amsterdam News and uh, Freedom's Journal here in New York. Mm-hmm. These are pioneering efforts. And uh, but it resonates beyond that because once you get a newspaper, then you're connected with other kind of industries there too, mm-hmm. and you can feed in. Now you got a promotional advertising arm, mm-hmm. and whatever you can help out the funeral parlors and mm-hmm. all of these things had to be done on your own because the white people were not interested in burying us. Right. So that's where that whole thing of like doing for self and taking care of your own. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You you look at. I spend a lot of my time in Southeast Asia, and there's a particular. Um, phenomenon you see in a lot of Southeast Asian cities, which is the Chinese fire department, <laughs> which, is a, which is a fire department by Chinese for Chinese because <laughs> they can't count on the dominant ethnicity to put out a fire in a Chinese neighborhood. Right. So I look at, it's, it's two sides of a sword, right? On the one hand, you, by the force of necessity, mm-hmm. from the very beginning over that 300-year span, you get people you know, building schools, building hospitals, developing the rudiments of, of a society that, that, is, that, is, um, that can stand on its own mm. because people won't stand with them. Exactly. With the largest society that's not pri- provide for you, you're going to have to develop it on your own. And mm-hmm. that from, from cradle to the grave, that's right. you find that kind of ingenuity, that kind of creativity. Uh, you mentioned the Gilded Age earlier. And I think there's yeah. a lot of people say, Detroit, Gilded Age? Yeah. You know, it's almost like Harlem Renaissance. It's yeah, beyond yeah. that. Yes, yeah. it is. Because you have like the, uh, certainly Motown is an important musical development. Here's Barry Gordy putting together his experiences working at the Ford Motor Company, the whole production, the whole process of uh, seeing how that assembly line worked and just superimpose it over the whole cultural Mm -hmm. and, and taking all of this talented people in the city of Detroit, the musicians that were just about on every street corner, mm-hmm. and and it's turned that into this empire, and certainly the whole soundtrack of a generation is created. Mm-hmm. But even before that, this thing does not just fall from the sky. There's a whole background and history of musical development, back to syncopation. I was going to say that, syncopation yeah, right, exactly. that was developed there. Yes. How much of the, how I mean... You're very clear in the relationship between Barry Gordon's approach to the business and the assembly line at yes, Ford. Yes, But musically, how what kind of a line can we draw from the syncopation of the of the bands in the early 20th century and and the Motown sound? Is it is it just a different thing? Oh no, I think what happens is is that you cannot separate. Almost inextricably connected is Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson. Yeah, that's right. You cannot lose him in the mix because without him, I don't think we can talk about a Motown as as it uh, developed because 
Smokey brought this here poetic genius, this here lyrical uh, creativity that he had. It was just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I grew up in the Jeffries. I spent five years in the Jeffries Projects. And uh, Smokey's Robinson's cousins lived right across the hall. Oh, wow. So whenever they came up to do their rehearsals, you know, the door would be wide open. Right. And, of course, I was right inside there with them. Mm-hmm. So some of the songs, like, you know, Got a Job, I heard that long before it was recorded. Mm-hmm. So it was that kind of opportunity. But that just shows you the kind of connectivity of the community, mm-hmm. how close, how grounded they were. And coming into the Jeffries Projects, the Brewster Projects, mm-hmm. where, you know, Diana Ross, you know, where later on those great songwriters, you mm-hmm. know, did Lamont Dozier. All of them, we all grew up together. Yeah. I was just uh, reflecting the other day with the loss of Dennis Edwards, mm-hmm. who took uh, David Ruffin's place, you know, in The Temptations. Yeah. I knew him. I knew all these when they were kids and teenagers right. and everything. That's the important thing about Black Detroit is that it was an opportunity for me to reminisce. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's to go back and, and think about all of these individuals, the Coleman Youngs that I knew very right. well, the Rosa Parks, you know, when she came in 1950. The John Conyers, who was in the news here recently, mm-hmm. all of these people I knew at different stages of their development and my own development, mm-hmm. but not without the counsel and guidance and leadership and inspiration of my mother. Mm-hmm. I owe it all to her. She's 98 years old. She's just as clear as a bell. Wow. That, <laughs> I mean, that is amazing. It, 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 it is. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, your, your, your mother and your your tribute to your mother is all oh, yes. over this. When we get back, um, we're going to take a quick break sure. right now. I'm going to ask you to uh, stay tuned. We'll we'll be back with Eleanor Tatum, oh, and, and we'll be connecting this conversation with her work and storytelling in the Amsterdam News. So oh, wonderful! Don't go away. Please stay tuned, everybody. Welcome back to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau. I'm the president of the City College of New York. And for the last half hour, we've had the uh, pleasure of speaking with Herb Boyd, the author of Black Detroit. And he and I have been talking about the contributions of African Americans in the shaping of Detroit. We are now pleased to welcome Eleanor Tatum to the discussion. She is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Amsterdam News. And... uh, I don't know if I have to say this to a Harlem audience, but I will anyways. The Amsterdam News is the voice of one of the largest and most influential black communities in the country and the world, the Harlem community. Eleanor, welcome to From City to the World. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, we have been talking a little bit about the stories that are in um, black Detroit. And I would like to ask you, but really both of you, to talk about the act of storytelling the way you do it. And I want to... You know, I had a professor that once taught me about what a newspaper did, and especially in the origins of the newspaper. And what he said was, a newspaper at a time when information was word of mouth, all of a sudden people got every morning to look at a sheet of paper and say, because of how these stories are juxtaposed on this day in this place, they start to see what a history is. They start to see the connection between different stories. And you both in your storytelling assemble stories that might otherwise in other outlets be left at the margin of something. You put them center stage. So I want to ask both of you about, and I'll start with you, Eleanor. Do you think about yourself as a storyteller in in, in in that role? Or is that is that too whimsical a way of describing a publisher of a major newspaper? Well, I think we all are storytellers Mm -hmm. in our own way. Um, 
And uh, what, what you say is so true in terms of the juxtaposition of the way we place stories and the fact that they're even there. Yeah. Um, and I think that's so important, especially with the black press, the mm -hmm. fact that we have stories there. I mean, people used to say that people didn't live, die, get married, go to college unless it was in the Amsterdam News. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, a lot has changed since then because we can't put in every birth, every right. death, every marriage, every graduation. Yeah. But the fact is we still tell the stories of our community. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what the Amsterdam News does every week, and if you were to, you know, if an alien came down, you know, tomorrow and looked right. at the Amsterdam News for the last month and looked at other newspapers for the last month, they may not think they were in the same place. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And if you look over the history of uh, the newspaper and in certain decades or certain years, they definitely wouldn't have any idea that they were even on the same planet. Right, right. right. Um, so I, I think the way that we've told stories and, and the stories that we've chosen to tell yeah. is what is so key. Yeah. And it's the stories of our community. It's the stories of our people. And if we look at one of the things in particular, um, and it's one of the, uh, the columns that um, actually Herb uh, started with was our Black New Yorker, sure. which mm -hmm. was telling the untold stories <laughs> of black New Yorkers, mm -hmm. um, whether it was the woman who was growing collard greens in her backyard in tubs and giving it to the community and mm -hmm. teaching the other kids how to mm -hmm. how to grow these things or mm -hmm. um, other church women that were, were doing wonderful things in their community were a teacher but these were some of the unsung heroes yeah. and that's something we've done every single week for you know upwards of almost 20 years now I, mean, I think yeah. exactly well that was the sense as I was reading black Detroit this mm -hmm. this this idea that you could write a history, people have written histories of Detroit where every now and then you get a black person, <laughs> as opposed to the way you've pulled it together and actually revealed to people who maybe weren't part of that and so wouldn't have seen it, that there is a coherent story of, of black people in this city that gets lost in dominant tellings of, of, of our history. You know, one of the things I've been doing for several years and Thanks to uh, Eleanor for giving me that platform. Uh, we call it Classroom. Mm -hmm. And it, it's an opportunity for me like to dig into uh, some of the unheralded voices, the hero and heroines, you yeah. know, going to get that coverage, you know, not even a footnote yeah. in some of the historical publications. But, you know, one of the things about this is, you know, this is an old tradition that we have, you mm -hmm. know, making sure that, you know, that we're a voice, you know, uh, going all the way back to Freedom's Journal, mm -hmm. right out of Brooklyn, with Samuel Cornish and John P. Russworm, all the way down to a Lerone Bennett. Yeah. And, and the whole idea is, is that we have these uh, very, very insightful, you know, absolutely uh, lyrical voices that need to be heard. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, with Black New Yorker, with uh, the classroom, with each one of our columns, you know, has that particular concern. If it's jazz, you know, if it's dance, if it's theater, if it's film, mm -hmm. we have our own particular perspective and analysis of that. 
that's a little bit uh, hopefully different, you know, from the mainstream press, that we can touch on some things that uh, they might miss. Uh, Recently, with the whole Black Panther thing, for example, the kind of coverage we've given on that has just been really extensive Mm -hmm. because we look at it with so many different perspectives. And we got Renee Minus White, who can take it from a fashion standpoint, or Dave Goldstein, who can look at it from a hip-hop standpoint. Mm -hmm. So that's what our paper does, is begin to itemize and particularize, you know, elements of the community that the mainstream press dare not touch. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I I was, as I was thinking about your book and the Amsterdam News, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about what it was like to go to a movie theater on the weekend that Black Panther premiered. (laughs) And you get that same, like, this was people coming from everywhere dressed in, you know, their best clothes to see this movie. And you, you, you get this kind of convergence around a cultural event, the same way a newspaper or, or a book like this is a cultural event. Um, Ellen, could you talk a little bit about what it's like? We, we are, um, sadly, we cover this, in the, we're, we're saying goodbye to Herb at City College at, um, probably after next year, but he's been a regular... Um, writer in the Amsterdam News, and I, I wonder what it's, what it's been like to have Herb on the staff working, and, and what's he brought to the table? Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, it's been phenomenal, and he better not be going anywhere. Oh, he's, he's, he's leaving us, but he's okay, not leaving good. us. Just, just, just needed to make sure. Um, but no, he's been a wonderful, wonderful writer to work with because he is a very nimble writer, mm-hmm. um, and he can, you know, Go from one thing to another, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's talking about cities or talking about jazz. Yeah. Um, and uh, he is also a very quick writer, which is also excellent when we're working on a newspaper. Right. Right. Um, and he's also extremely insightful yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, also an excellent editor mm. oh, as fantastic. well. So he's a uh, mm-hmm. he pitches in a lot with that as well, which is which is great. Mm-hmm. And it's just great to be able to have somebody that you can call on at the last minute and say, hey, we need something on this. Yeah, yeah. And also being in, on the pulse of what's going on to say, hey, I've got a story for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what we have at the Amsterdam News, I think more than anything, probably a critical concern is that we're a team. Yeah. We've got some phenomenal editors there with Chris and Naya. You know, and they, uh, they have pulled that paper together. Talk about the uh, editor and the managing editor there, mm-hmm. working in concert with Eleanor. And I see it week after week. You know, it's not easy. People think, oh, you know, boom, boom. It takes a lot of effort and energy mm-hmm. to put together a weekly newspaper. Mm-hmm. You can imagine, you know, the number of stories that we cannot get everything in there. Right. You know, it's not like we got 120 pages and we can deal with a phenomenal number of, of items there. Right. But we have a limited, so it has to be concentrated and sometimes make it resonate beyond that particular narrative. Mm-hmm. So it, be, it encompasses a little bit more than that particular subject you're talking about. Mm-hmm. For example, I think the Black Panther thing is exemplary of that in terms of how we can talk about that in so many different, a variety of perspectives. Mm-hmm. And that's what the paper is all about. That's the mother's milk of the paper. And it also has to have a week-long shelf life. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we also don't want to just regurgitate what everyone else has already said because mm-hmm. of the fact that we are a weekly and we can't cover it on a daily basis, except for on the web, of course, mm-hmm. you know, when we can, can update things. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, you know, we come out on Thursdays. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody buys the newspaper on Tuesday or Wednesday, we still want it to be relevant. Right, right. So we have to write in a little bit of a different way. Yeah. And we have to cover things a little bit differently. Yeah. And we also want to give it a perspective that people are going to be interested in because 
we want them to pick up our newspaper, um, even if they're picking up other newspapers, right, right. because we're not doing it every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why the historical analysis is so important, mm -hmm. because you've then extended beyond the moment. Yeah. You're talking like maybe advancing it forward, you're looking down the road, but at the same time, in a Sankofa way, you know, the bird that faces forward but looks back. So you're also be trying, like, can I bring in some historical aspects to kind of ramify mm -hmm. who we're talking about with this particular incident, be it police brutality, you know, the whole what's going on now with Black Lives Matter, the Me Too uh, with the whole uh, sexual harassment and what have you, all these different issues out there to say nothing of the Trump administration. Move on. <laughs> Move on. Well, that is, that is a good segue. You are listening to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreaux, the president of the City College of New York. And my guests today are Herb Boyd, author of Black Detroit, and Eleanor Tatum, publisher and editor-in-chief of the Amsterdam News. And we're discussing the importance of African Americans in telling their own stories, both in newspapers and in the work of Professor Boyd. Um, I wanted, you know, mm -hmm. these are tough days for newspapers. They're, 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 You're telling me. I, I'm, not, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that comes out in Herb's book is from the very beginning, it, does, it almost didn't matter how many African Americans were in Detroit, 200, 2,000, 20,000, 200,000. There was, no matter how many of them there were, there was enough of a concentrated focus on what it meant to build a black society, that cultural institutions were supported. Music was supported. Writing was supported. The religious institutions were supported. The schools were supported. And I wonder if, despite the difficulties that newspapers have, despite the fact that you're a weekly rather than a daily, what does it mean to be speaking to a particular audience that gets their news from you in a way that they don't get from anybody else. It, it, do, you, do you feel that same kind of, if you're a resident of Harlem or if you're an African-American or Latino in northern Manhattan, whatever else you do, you've got to read the Amsterdam News. <laughs> well, I feel that, and mm -hmm. I think Herb feels oh, that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, in parts of Brooklyn, too, and Queens, yeah. and, uh, you know, all yeah, through the... Yeah, I didn't the, want to the, limit the, you. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but, but the fact is that, you know, people get information from so many places these days. Mm -hmm. And that, that does put a, a pressure on us. And, um, and when you look at the black press in general, and in New York City in particular... You know, people have diversified so much in terms of the way they get information yeah. that, you know, when you look at newspapers, they're – people are not buying newspapers the way they used to. Yeah, that's true. And while there is still a huge importance in newspapers and we still are carrying messages that others are not um, – there is the possibility that some of these newspapers that are here now will not be here yeah. in the very near future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the other things, uh, just a uh, couple of days ago on Broadway and 143rd Street, um, a woman was coming up, an elderly woman, pushing her cart and everything. She said, Herb, I found a place where I can get the Amsterdam news. It's oh, just boy. two blocks down. And here's this woman who depends on the paper version yep. yeah. because she's not capable of doing all of the kind of going online and which have the whole digital universe is kind of completely alien for her. Mm -hmm. So there's a community out there who rely on the very tangible aspects of having that newspaper in their hands. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that becomes very difficult when newsstands are not newsstands anymore. Right. 
Right. And there is no space to put a newspaper in the corner store right. anymore. Yeah. So that whole type of commerce is almost disappearing. Yeah. And it's a fight to get newspapers on to newsstands. So how are you, uh, how are you waging the fight? As hard as we can mm -hmm. and every day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Our approach is like not either or, yep. both and. Yeah. Both and. Yeah. We try to keep that paper coming out each week. Meanwhile, we have a service, a community that's online. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of like, you know, the breaking story, the daily having right. reporters who are able to quickly do on that, capture that information yeah. and make it available for a large audience. But yeah. at the same time, putting out a print edition every week. Every come, week. You know, whatever comes our way, whether it's a, a storm, whether mm -hmm. it's a blackout, you know, we're still, yeah. we're still there. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So this is, you know, and this is a, this is a good day and a good month to say it. These are, these are enduring cultural institutions, and, and, and I think we need to find a way to make sure that the newspaper, particularly the Amsterdam News, is, is supported not just as a, as a product that you purchase, but as a cultural institution that's mattered in the city. Um, I wanted to ask you both, mm. we are on the last day of Black History Month, and, <laughs> and, and, and both of you have been in real time constructing black history as, as, a, as a daily job. Does the month mean something specific to you in your work, or is every month Black History Month to the Amsterdam News? <laughs> well, I mean, and, and every day is black history <laughs> to us because we are chronicling the lives yeah. of black people every single day. Mm -hmm. um, to us, February means that it is the time when the rest of the world actually right. sees black people. Mm -hmm. um, advertisers, for one, actually recognize that we exist in that month. Mm -hmm. um, so there's sometimes more advertising in February. Uh -huh. um, and oh, right. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's Black History Month. We need to advertise in black newspapers. <laughs> Call the Amsterdam News. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, but, but leap, leap Year works really well for you then. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but, but for us, it's every day because yeah. we're, chrono we're writing down the history. We're, mm. we're getting it all in there every single day, yeah. every mm. single week, year after year. I mean, we've been around for 109 years. Mm -hmm. Telling the stories mm -hmm. that other people have not told. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. that's something that's really important. Wow. You know, real time. And, and one of the things about this is that uh, it's an opportunity for some of us struggling, impoverished scholars to get opportunities to go out and lecture. So Black History Month, you know, uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago, we had an individual say, I didn't do away with Black History Month. We don't need that anymore. It's almost say like, do away with the NAACP, do away with the Urban League, do away with the Amsterdam News. Mm -hmm. These entities are needed more than ever. You know, the critical times that we're enduring right now, it cries out for that. Yeah. And some of the strategies and tactics that were very useful in the past, mm -hmm. we're going to have to revive the more potent elements and bring them back to fore mm -hmm. because those issues haven't vanished at all. Yeah. You know, we have to continue ways to struggle. Yeah. The subtitle, self-determination. We have to keep on that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, in, and in some ways, of course, your book is an advertisement for why that argument is fallacious. There, exactly. you know, there, there's, there's a way of thinking that says, that said, 
now that we're in a post-racial society, <laughs> right, um, we don't need to sec- separate this out. But you read your book, and, you, and page after page after page, or you read the Amsterdam News, page after page, and you say, these stories don't get told but for the Amsterdam News, but for Herb Boyd's book. Well, I think what happens is, is that I consider myself a triple-A man. You know, I'm an activist, academic, and an author. And my journalism feeds into my books that go into the classrooms here at City College. So all I really do is recycle information. <laughs> well, but listen. you bring a keen perspective to it as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're not right. Exactly. And we have been um, for 12 years the, the grateful beneficiaries of that recycling and, and, and mm-hmm. repackaging and, 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 and reframing. And, and he and, cites his sources. And he cites his sources. There are there are there are. I don't know how many, about 50 pages of footnotes in, in, in Black Detroit, um, which uh, it, it's, it's so important that when people read this, Thank they you. know that they're getting the work of uh, a consummate professional. Who you is, know, this is his debut. It doesn't sound like a debut, does it? No, he's, he, he sounds like a consummate professional. Oh, I, I, I've been practicing in the bathroom for all week long, just over. So on that note, I have to say, we are out of time. Um, I want to thank both of you for coming oh, and pleasure. making this debut Wonderful. so special for me. Herb Boyd and mm-hmm. Eleanor Tatum. Herb, um, tell our listeners about, you've got an upcoming book signing, uh, both on campus and I think somewhere else in the city. Here on Plug campus, them all. Uh, March the 27th, you know, uh, thanks to uh, Cheryl and the uh, Black Studies program here, mm-hmm. they're giving me an opportunity to reach an audience here on campus. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, my goodness, you don't want to hear it. <laughs> the schedule is like absolutely exhausting. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, uh, go to Pittsburgh for a residency. I'm doing a residency, a planned residency in Pittsburgh. I'm off to Providence Brown University, back to Detroit, uh, the Ann Arbor, the Notable Book Michigan Award. I, I mean, they're just coming in. The Aronson Award. Wow. I got the Aronson Award, the National Guardian. When I arrived here in New York, the, uh, along with the Amsterdam News, I wrote the, with the National Guardian, and it was founded by uh, Cedric Belgrave and uh, James Aronson. Oh, okay. So I got the I get the annual award on uh, April the twenty fourth. That's fantastic. Thank so I, I guess what I'm hearing is check your newspaper, check your internet, <laughs> look check for the Amsterdam Boy. News. Yeah, check the Amsterdam <laughs> News. You won't be sorry. Um, Eleanor, uh, I, I will I will start your plug by the Amsterdam News. It is a priceless cultural um, institution. But is there anything you want to leave our, mm-hmm. our our listeners with? Well, you know, when we started talking, I was thinking about saying Herb was saying, and he was talking about Cornish and Rustworm. And in their first editorial, they said, we choose to plead our own cause. Mm-hmm. For too long have others spoken for us. Yeah. And that's still, you know, our mantra today, mm-hmm. because for too long have others spoken for us and continue to speak for us and continue to tell us what we should be thinking. Mm-hmm. And we need to know that we have our own thinkers and we need people to know that those voices are in the Amsterdam News. Yeah, that's right. That's phrase, self-determination. Yeah. Oh, straight ahead. All right. <laughs> Listen, I thank you for listening from, to From City for the World. If This show is produced by Angela Harden. Thank you, Angela, for your hard work on this show. I am your host and president, Vincent Boudreau, president of the City College of New York. Enjoy the rest of your day. And once again, a big thanks to both of my guests, Eleanor Tatum and Herb Boyd. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both.